Hey, welcome back. This is another podcast. In this episode, I've got John, the CEO of Team Secret. Now, Team Secret, I think, is one of the first ever player-owned esports organizations, especially right near the top. They got founded through a game called Dota 2, which is known for giving out huge prize monies, but not known for creating a sustainable ecosystem for their teams. And especially during the end of the podcast, we talked about how the top three to five teams within Dota 2 have won $50 million plus in prize money over the past 10 years of existence, yet they still struggle to maintain themselves as a professional business within the space. We talk about different ecostructures of Riot versus Valve, we talk about his expansion into mobile gaming into Southeast Asia away from Europe, and so many other things within this podcast. I really enjoyed this chat. I hope you do too. There we go. John, we're live. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Glad to be on. Yeah, yeah, I'm good too, man. Um, you know, we're in a like we talk about with everything, we're in a pretty serious coronavirus lockdown here in Victoria, but um, not not doing not doing too bad. But it's good to it's good to finally get on with you. It's been a, I don't know, probably six months in the making. I think to make this happen. <laughs> yeah, I think I messaged you like six months ago, and then we kind of talked off and on, and just tried to find a find a good time to do this. But glad we're yeah. able to do it. Yeah, yeah, and off the back of a an esports beer, nonetheless, which is what we'll talk, which is what we'll talk about later. But, sure, um, sure. I guess the the easiest thing to start off with is, can you just give like a, a quick elevator pitch, like on yourself, like your history, um, and then also you know what you're doing today with Team Secret. Yeah, sure. I mean, my my pitch is like, you know, I just love building businesses, right? So I, I come from a background in strategy consulting, um, and in strategy consulting, all we do is um, give advice to uh, executives at, at big companies on you know how to run their businesses, what their strategy should be, how to be more efficient, all those things. Um, and at some point uh, during my career, I worked in strategy consulting for about 10, 12 years. And I said, you know, let's uh, let's apply this to uh, something of uh, my own venture. Uh, and then you know, I got familiar with esports. I thought the the demographics, the growth of the industry, and everything was fantastic. Um, so, and, you know, I've always been, um, somewhat of a gamer. I had a strong mm-hmm. affinity, uh, for, for the community. So I was just like, all right, let's do this. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to meet, uh, Poppy and, uh, some of the other members of the Dota team. And I said, well, uh, this brand is something, so we can build something here. Hmm. Are you, are you, are you a gamer yourself? Like, like what's your exposure to the industry before joining? Very, very, um, casually in that I game, but I suck at everything. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds pretty good. I mean, Dota, Dota Two is probably the hardest, the hardest place to start, right? Like such a high, like it's a high skill ceiling, but also a high level of entry to understanding. It's it's the worst. I, uh, I <laughs> it's a new players. It's like I don't know how the players do it. I mean, they're just like they're they're like super geniuses, right? Like when mm-hmm. I see what happens on screen, and then I'm like, yeah, I like my mind cannot process that quickly. Um, I play yeah. mostly League of Legends. Um, but even there, and I'm like, you know, just like normal, like gold elo, <laughs> really shitty. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Like, and for those people who are listening who might not understand, there's like a, a sibling rivalry between League of Legends and Dota Two. Generally, generally, the two audiences aren't too friendly. So it's it's kind of comical, I guess, that a not only does Team Secret have both League of Legends and Dota Two teams, but also b you know the CEO. Um, of the company, which is founded off Dota 2, plays League of Legends as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to me, right, um, when we came in, there, there was a little bit of a pushback, right, in the company itself uh, around League of Legends and, you know, our direction. And, you know, my, my whole thing was like, look, we're, we're, all, um, we're all gamers. We all mm-hmm. have uh, an affinity and a love um, for a particular game. And so, you know, we don't want to discriminate against one or the other. It's just like we want Team Secret to be a brand, an esports brand for everyone. Right. Anyone who loves gaming, who loves esports. So that's why, you know, we kind of just broke away from, all right, is it 
Dota versus League? Is it you know PUBG versus Fortnite? It's just like you know we want to do it all. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. So I guess yeah, the the easiest um, place to start with Secret is talking about the foundations of it, right? So there was like a, I guess like Dota two has some interesting challenges and also you know some ways to uplift especially the players based around that so can you talk about like the you know the foundation of team secret how it is different to say traditional esports organization and you know how the how the players are kind of at the center of everything sure sure um you know when i look out in the ecosystem uh and not every team is like this right but a lot of teams are right um it's uh it's kind of split where a lot of teams are uh player owned operated and led Right, which which is really good for you know content creation, engaging with the community, that kind of thing. But usually, like on the business side, it kind of falters. Um, and then you know you have uh, a lot of new entrants into esports where it's a very traditional business executive led, right? Whether it's you know a private equity company that invests into esports and just you know puts a uh, a leader in place or someone from traditional mis- uh, traditional media uh, that mm-hmm. comes into place and, and leads an esports team. Um, where the connection to the the fan base and the audience is not so great, um, uh, and, and I'm you know generalizing here, right? There's there's all different kinds of other other models. Um, for us, um, we kind of saw this uh, happening, and what we wanted to do was to say, okay, you know, I come from a background of traditional business. I can come in, run the business, build the business, um, but we wanted to also have it very authentic, you know, and have um, huge amount of player uh, led influence. Um, into how we build the brand, into how we engage with the fan base and the community. Um, and so that's why, you know, working with the Dota team as kind of our foundation, we said, all right, let's build out Team Secret, originally a Dota team, but we can expand the business, we can build it into an actual business rather than just a, you know, a player-led team. Um, uh, and even today, um, you know, we, uh, on the business side, you know, I run the business, um, but on the ownership front, um, we have, uh, you know, some players that have uh, ownership in the business um, and uh, are also involved in some of the, the day-to-day uh, activities. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've been lucky enough to, you know, have on the podcast and to create content with a few kind of what I call like OGs of the industry, especially, you know, we've had, we've had gods, you know, and an Aussie, you know, he's been paramount in, in a lot of commentary and, and building the scene globally. And we had PPD kind of like the, the shining light out of trying to build the scene in North America. Um, yeah. You know, we've had on Loder from Sweden as well. And I guess you guys have another one, especially, which is in the, in the realm of puppy. So I'd love to, I'd love to talk from your perspective around, and you know, a lot of my discussion with PPD especially was around the business structure of the way that sure. Dota 2 works versus, you know, other games. So there's like an article that came out recently about a Singaporean team, which has just disbanded. It was like their, um, their kind of shining star out of that region. And, you know, one of the major reasons they said that it, that it disbanded is due to just the lack of understanding or, or the lack of support from Valve, you know, in the Dota 2 infrastructure. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's a great uh, PR presence and create a lot of content around how, you know, the Dota 2 International is the largest single um, single prize pool esports tournament, you know, $34 plus million. You know, the first yeah. place team will often walk away with $10 million in the pocket. And it's fantastic if you're OG and you win two of those in a row. But um, it's it's not great if you don't qualify for the international or, um, you know, if you want to rely on something other than simply just prize money. So I'd be interested in talking about, you know, how, how do you see that the Dota 2 market, obviously you guys are in League of Legends too, so you see both sides of the yeah. fence, you know, kind of that, that franchise, very um, strict model of you're turning up and playing on certain times, certain dates, you've got all that structure ahead of you versus Dota yeah. 2, which is just really all over the place, but, but massive prize pools. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I think uh, there are pros and cons uh, of both models. I think in League of Legends, it the, the model tends to be more um, even across, more equitable across in terms of opportunities for all the teams, right? Um, and I think in Dota, it's very much like Feast or Famine. Um, so if you, I mean, I, I, if you know, um, if you look at all the TI teams, right, from previous TIs, it's like either you're a top four team and you, you know, kind of break even or slash make a, you know, small profit, or you're not a top four team and you're just like losing money all the time. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. basically Dota, right? Um, and it's like the, the prize pool is a little bit of a mirage um, because uh, in Dota, the majority, the vast majority of the prize pool goes to the players. And this is not a knock on the players because I think um, the players are super talented. They deserve, you know, everything that they, uh, that they earn, right? Um, mm -hmm. But outside of prize pool, there's not, a huge amount of other opportunities except for direct sponsorship um, for for teams to actually thrive, right? And you need mm. teams because, uh, you know, well, not every player is like this. Some players are, are very amenable to uh, being content creators and influencers and all that stuff. But the vast majority of players I know just want to play, right? They mm. just want to compete. They just want to play. And so in order for um, Dota, uh, and, and Dota brands to to build into sort of a product um, and to market the players um, and to engage and build the audience and do all these things. You need orgs to do that stuff, right? Because the players are not going to do it themselves, and they they don't want to do it themselves. They want to they want to they want to play, right? They want to figure out new strategies. They want to perfect their game, um, and so you need to have an ecosystem around that, and a supporting structure around that to be able to enable them to do that, um, as well as you know create this product around Dota so that the fans can engage and consume it. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think the I think the finances and uh, the, the the economic structure in Dota is uh, is, is dangerous um, because you know the the, the tier two scene is not not super well supported um, even in the tier one scene you know beyond the top four teams I, I don't think you're doing too well um, mm -hmm. and you see you know teams exit uh, you see teams um, go in and out um, for these reasons uh, because it's like you know you, you either you're winning all the time and you're kind of stable. From that because you know you do have some prize pool earnings um or uh you know if you're just like middle of the pack um you know number seven number eight uh, i don't think you're doing too well um you're really relying on brand sponsorships and things like that uh, but even even um that part is a little bit of a challenge um, i think this will change with the upcoming dpc because it's a it's a more cons consistent um schedule of uh of dota exposure uh so to speak and so it's easier to um sell sponsorships when there's exposure rather than big bang, right? Dota before is just like, okay, there's a tournament, you get a lot of impressions, you get a lot of eyeballs, a lot of viewership. Okay, we can sell that. But then it's like, you know, happens over the course of a week or two weeks and then there's like nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Like sponsors don't like that, right? Sponsors like, okay, we want to market our product. So, you know, in a league structure, right? You have, uh, you know, eight weeks of competition, you know, some playoffs or whatever, and you have three seasons or two seasons throughout the year. It's like very, um, there's stability in that, right? There's reliability in that. In Dota, it's like, well, if you don't qualify for the next tournament, you're probably not doing anything for the next three months. Mm. <laughs> so it, it's it's much harder from a business standpoint. Yeah, that's really true. And I guess, you know, like drawing a couple of things there from you said that PPD helped to open my eyes too. It was like, you know, why why don't Dota players want to create more content and become a content creator and, and do what you see so often in the Fortnite space and the Call of Duty space and now even CSGO? And he's like, Chris, they just don't care because they want to win a million bucks at TI. They don't want to grovel over a $10,000 sponsorship and be beholden to a brand and have to do the deliverables and do the tweets on time and to do X amount of streaming. They just want to play as much as they can 
you know, to, to be, and I think like Anna is probably the perfect example of that. The dude tweets like three times a year, you know, yeah. he's not, he's not a social presence at all. He's not a content creator. He's quite reserved. You can see from all of his content, but he's won a bunch of majors. He's won two, two internationals and he's got a lot of money in his pocket. So I think, you know, it's almost like the reward system is set up in, in a way that, that doesn't help promote the teams either. And yeah. even though you guys have won, you know, it's like looking at your Liquipedia, you know, Team Secret has won $11 million in, in Dota 2 over its history um, in prize money. You know, it's a common, and I'm glad you cleared up, like the common misconception from people outside. It's not like horse racing. You don't own the horse, employ the jockey, and keep most of the prize pool and maybe yeah. pay the jockey bonuses. It's the opposite. You know, the players are quite often receiving, you know, or the team is, is often receiving anywhere from 0 to 20% of the prize pool, depending on how it's set up. Right. Right. And I actually think, um, you know, on the topic of TI, um, you know, my personal opinion is that having such a massive prize pool year after year for TI is, uh, you know, is good for the overall, you know, stature of the game, right? We have the biggest prize pool in history, uh, biggest tournament in history um, of, of all mm-hmm. the esports, right? Um, you know, that kind of like big bang is good. But I think overall, um, it's not so good for the scene uh, because I think that, you know, you create People, re- people respond to incentives, right? People react to incentives. And I think you create a situation where, you know, like nothing matters except for TI, right? You qualify for TI and you sit back for the rest of the year, like nothing else matters because the players just want to win TI. Um, mm. You know, you, you get to a situation where teams are skipping out on majors, right? <laughs> Which is like, you know, it's, it's crazy to me, right? Because I'm just like, dude, it's a major, right? But, you know, some mm. teams are skipping out on majors because it's like, dude, um, we can rest, we can, you know, recuperate, we can, you know, save some strats, you know, whatever it is, uh, uh, as long as we show up at TI, that's all, that's all that matters. Right. And I think yeah, right. yeah. it's a little bit unhealthy, um, in, in my opinion. Um, and I, and I do think that, you know, you can rebalance some of those incentives because, you know, TI doesn't need to be like $35 million, right? <laughs> like you can, you can still have the stature, um, and the importance of TI if you cap it at like, you know, 25 and then just redistribute the money to like tier two and to, to majors. Right. Like if majors mm. were like, you know, $3 million, $5 million, like nobody would skip a major. Mm. Right? Yeah. And you, yeah. Yeah. And to clarify that for people, you know, what John's saying is people are skipping majors, which is a million dollar plus tournament. People are skipping yeah. million dollar tournaments, <laughs> crazy to me. Um, you know, who are struggling. And it was, it, it was interesting to see what you're saying about, you know, like people outside the top four struggling. And it was always interesting to see esports evolve like that. You know, you would see Australian teams that would win a qualifier to go overseas and compete on a global stage. And, you know, like those Aussie guys, you know, they're, they're carpenters. They work at Coles at checkouts and things like that. And, you know, they're staying in a hostel. You know, there's probably all six of them are staying in one hostel room together. You know, they're eating two minute noodles and ramen and they're playing against Fnatic on stage who are being paid salaries to be there and they've been flown there, you know, not in the back of the plane and they're staying in a nice hotel and things like that too. And it's crazy to see that. I remember reading a story about, a, it was a Southeast Asian Dota 2 team and I can't remember who it was, um, but, you know, competing at TI and they were eating two meals a day because they couldn't afford yeah. to eat anymore. And one of those meals was two hard boiled eggs. So it wasn't really, it was like one and a half meals a day. And then they're here competing in TI where, you know, with the $35 million prize pool, it's like 16th place gets something like $100,000 or something like that. So it's life-changing. Right, Right. it is, it is. Mm. But, you know, it's packed into such a short amount of time, right? It's like you qualify Mm. for TI and, you know, maybe you haven't made very much during the year or you haven't had, you know, a salary um, or, or, you know, any, any sort of financial. And then, you know, you go into TI and you make, you know, even the 16th place, you know, makes a pretty decent amount, but it's over the span of two weeks. And then the rest of the year you go back into, into what, right. Mm. It's, mm. it's, um, 
you know, it doesn't need to be such a big bang kind of thing, right? It can be spread out a little bit more. And I think it'll be, make the, the scene a little bit more uh, sustainable because, you know, these are the incentives that force um, you know, teams on the cusp and, you know, tier two teams to not further invest time and energy, not just money, right? Time and energy into it because it's like, you know, either we're, you know, top four or, you know, we just, we're nothing. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it was interesting. You were, you were talking about those, um, you know, individual sponsorships or the one-source sponsorships, the big tournaments. And that was something that I'd never thought about before until I was approached by a couple of teams that played in TI last year, you know, wanting yeah. to sell, you know, 80, 80 to 500 grand just for a single tournament. And yeah. it's crazy because it's like, if I was a brand like, you know, um, you know, you guys are sponsored by Corsair who I work for for two years. Like I, I couldn't see with my Corsair hat on them ever doing that, you know, because you can't, yeah. you can't tell a story over those two weeks, you know, sign yeah. a partnership. They, they wear your Jersey on stage. Let's say they bomb out of the competition, which has happened before yeah. to teams. You know, it happened, it happened last year to a high profile team, you know, yeah. um, they, they bombed out quite early and then what, <laughs> where's your, where's your return on that 150 K that you put on for a sleeve sponsorship? It's hugely risky um, to brands, um, but I think for brands, um, when you sponsor a team, you want to build brand affinity with that team, and you want to build um, some sort of affinity with that brand, with that team's fan base, right? And in order to do that, that takes time, right? That's mm -hmm. not like, oh, you you sponsor us for for two weeks during a tournament, and all of a sudden, like people love Corsair. It's not. It's just like, you know, in the first year, like, oh, these guys use Corsair. Maybe it's cool, right? We, you know, get some, um, some, some, uh, some eyeballs on the brand, some affinity for the brand. Uh, in the second year, it's like, oh, these guys are winning a lot, right? Um, you know, let's look at their equipment. Let's look at what the players are using. You know, the players start building up their personal brands, and then they're like, oh, like, let's let's look at my favorite player, what he uses, right, in, in pro games. And then so that way, you start to build up the brand affinity. Um, but, but like I said, it takes time, right? It's not just like one tournament and, you know, you automatically get that impact. And so it's very hard to, um, make a business case, uh, for, uh, mega sponsorships, even for a big tournament like TI. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Really true. Do you, do you think that, I mean, you know, we can, we can talk about different business models until the cows come home, but I think Valve is <laughs> known for just doing what they feel like doing. Do you, do you think yeah. there's ever going to be a possibility that they start to take some of these to heart? Cause I know they've, you know, they've hired some prominent people from the community now to actually work, you know, in PR and marketing positions in the company. Yeah, I, I, th I think so. I mean, I, I have high hopes uh, for that. I think, um, you know, they, they uh, keep trying different things with the DPC, right? The DPC every single season has looked different. Um, and I think, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of um, tweaking to make sure that they find the, the right formula that works. Um, but with their own brand on it, right? They don't just want to like go, go copy another ecosystem uh, kind of thing, right? They want to make it uniquely Dota. Um, which mm -hmm. I think is, I, I think it's fine. Um, but I think, uh, you know, things do need to um, shift, shift a little bit in terms of the incentives to make the scene uh, a little bit more sustainable. Mm. And it's, and it's interesting, you know, going back once again, talking a little bit more about, about the prize pool and stuff and how important that is, you know, it's, it's really easy to focus on the international being such a massive prize pool, but it, it was always interesting to me to see that like the League of Legends prize pool, no one talks about that at all. You know, it's a couple mm. million dollars for first place at Worlds, but it's so hidden underneath everything else that's important that people don't even discuss that. And I, I've seen people from traditional sports bring up that too. I think people from esports love to make infographics where they compare Dota 2 to Wimbledon or to things like that as well. <laughs> but, you know, these players, they're not... What, what's the prize pool of Formula 1? I have, I have zero idea. Is there a prize no, yeah. pool in the Australian <laughs> Football League or NFL? I don't have any idea. But yeah. you know that if you sign to the NFL, it's a minimum $300,000 contract that you're signing on to. 
Um, and you know that if you're signing up to the LCS, the, the, the common starter contract for, for someone who's around 300K over multiple years as well. But, yeah. you know, you, you don't know that in Fortnite. You don't know that in Dota 2. And it, it's really interesting seeing this in Fortnite now too. Um, they're doing very similar, you know, to what Dota 2 is. Um, Epic Games has made it very clear they just don't care about teams whatsoever, you know, during right. the World Cup last year. There's zero promo right. for teams. They just talk about the players. Um, and also they're so cash intensive that you know all the players are leaving teams and going out on their own because why why would they give 10 percent of their prize money to a team they'd be losing out on money when they can just create their own content and do their own stuff but you're also seeing at the same time players just simply not turn up to win fifty thousand dollars because they can't be bothered (laughs) and things like that too which doesn't create stability or professionalism for the scene to, to grow into the future yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I view Fortnite as, uh, I mean, so that's one of the reasons why we love Fortnite, right? I, I think uh, Fortnite is a tremendous uh, platform, um, and I think it is really great for individual content creators, right? I, I think what they're doing is completely uh, unique in the industry, you know, bringing in, you know, musicians and things like that, um, and, and just uh, being a content platform, really. Mm. Um, and I think that's more of their focus than the competitive esports side of things. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for, for teams, it just doesn't really, really make sense, um, to me, uh, because I think it's, uh, more about the individual content creator than, uh, the team brand. But when you look at Fortnite, it's really more of an individual kind of game also. Um, it's mm-hmm. more like, you know, your individual mechanical skill, your, your individual influence, um, you know, how you approach the game. It's not, it's not less, you know, five and five on five, you know, team based, uh, type of sport. Right. Um, and I think there's also, um, you know, some mechanics to it that are a little bit, um, make it a little bit more random uh, than some of the the other uh, you know esports on the scene. So I, I think mm-hmm. because of these number of variables, um, you know, being a team in esports, you really have to um, be about a, a content creator ecosystem kind of team um, or brand rather than a pure um, I want to go win tournaments kind of team. Yeah, that's really true. And I guess it's you know it's a discussion we've we've had a bit here in my content is kind of sitting on that where do you sit on that sliding scale do you sit on that sliding scale on one side which is like you know we're an esports team that plays and wins the top tournaments you know similar to what you guys are or say a fanatic or a cloud nine do you sit somewhere in the middle like 100 thieves who's you know is as concerned about their merchandise and their you know cash app tournaments and and their content creator house as they are about winning in in lcs or are you like phase which you know affectionately they're pretty much not even an esports team you know they've got a yeah. scope squad they don't talk about a lot because yeah. they're just kicking so many goals in in all other areas of content creation and yeah it makes sense that you guys have identified where we want to sit on that sliding scale and yeah, yeah. How do we want to represent it? I do think that um, there are there's no you know right or wrong way to approach it, right? Because I think you can be very successful in a number of different ways, right? Like Phase, for example, like hugely successful, right? Probably like you know the best you know known brand um, in you know quote unquote esports, and they have like content creators, musicians, sports stars, everything, right? Mm-hmm. Amazing what they've done with the brand. Um, but uh, you know you don't have to necessarily do that, and then you don't necessarily have to be. Um, but I do I do think you have to choose a a identity, right? And so for us, um, our identity is we want to go win tournaments, we want to be the best in the world, we want to build contender teams, and on the way to that, right, um, we want to tell the story of our players, right, their journey from you know nothing into how to become a world champion, how to comp- how to contend for world championship, and then you know building our brand. Um, on the way to that. But all of that stuff is kind of secondary um, to the ultimate goal of uh, being the highest performing team. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's like the, the way I, the, the way that I would, I would think about it is like you have 24 hours in the day, right? 
on hour 23, do you shut off your stream and go train? Or do you continue to be on stream and say, well, you know, I'll train tomorrow, right? So what do you choose? So that, that to me is the ultimate decider. Yeah, it's, and I guess like I want to I want to expand on the telling the story narrative because it's something that I've been talking about a lot. I'm planning a um, made a bunch of posts about this on LinkedIn, but but I'm working with a group and we're planning a um, a sort of reality show at the moment based around gaming and esports. So I've been diving oh, cool. really deep into this <laughs> cool. telling the story. You know, there's been a League of Legends reality show in Brazil that was interesting. You know, there's been the you know Ultimate Gamer back in 2009 was kind of really the last showing really of, of that kind of stuff as well. So yeah, I'd be really interested in, in learning from you guys. You know, like how how do you tell your story? Do you have a do you have a content team on hand? Do you create you know vlogs and and stories leading up to following through tournaments? You know, do you require your players to stream? Like like how do you do that? Yeah. So for for us, um, our our strategy is uh, so we are historically uh, an EU uh, sort of based brand, um, but. Uh, since you know expanding our portfolio, there's two markets that we really focus on. It's uh, EU um, and it's Southeast Asia, um, and I can get into the reasons why behind that um, later. But in those two markets, right, um, the reason you know kind of our differentiator is that we can be a global brand, right, and we can appeal um, more broadly uh, to esports audiences in all these various games. Um, but we can also localize very well, right, and so we can go into like Malaysia, right? And make content that is in Malaysian, um, resonates really well, um, you know, Malaysian memes that you and I would never get, right? Like that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. So we can localize and um, in these individual markets, like very, very well. Um, and that's one of our core strengths. And so when we, when we talk about telling the story, um, we don't really approach it as a, as a blanket, like, oh, let's just do behind the scenes, right? Let's just, you know, get a camera crew, just tell some behind the scenes stuff. Like we really adapt it to every single market based on the team, right? So in Vietnam, right, um, League of Legends, we have a team house, right? All the teams have team houses, um, you know, basing uh, the team around a central location in the team house, how they interact at the house uh, is a really big thing, right? So we, we try to tell the story, you know, in kind of that setting. Um, in Malaysia, right, it's a little bit different, right? It, and teams not in a team house or anything like that, but we, you know, tell the story around, you know, what kind of food they like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, like how they how they live, right? Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, you know, some of the, the the behind the scenes stuff is more around, you know, tournaments, right? How do they prepare? How do they train? Um, and I think it's like really much, you know, what we think resonates with the audience in each each individual market is how we like to tell the story. Mm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's it's something I've talked with um with Talon Esports about you know, quite in depth mm. before. And we're actually meant to have a podcast with them last week that got delayed. So for anyone watching who wants to learn more about SEA, we'll, we'll have them on soon. Um, but yeah, talking about that, you know, just the just the different languages throughout Southeast Asia is intense. Yeah. I think a lot of people just kind of lump it in together. You know, I think people love to say APJ, you know, talking with a client that we're pitching at the moment. To them, APJ is all of Southeast Asia, China, Japan, and Australia, <laughs> which yeah. is like, it's like 10, <laughs> 10 or 12 different languages, you know, and sometimes they even like to put in India, which is 22 languages in itself, <laughs> or 20 yeah, different states and 20-ish languages. Massive. And, um, and the population, like, what is that? It's like half the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you get that in the past, you know, working uh, for, for brands in the market as well, you get that in the past too. They they love to, you know, put the headquarters in Taiwan and say, okay, Taiwan, you can look after, you know, China, Australia, India, all of Southeast Asia. And I think the Taiwan branch goes, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, Australia gets put to the bottom of the pile a lot of the times there, um, which is what happens. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, looking at the content strategy. I think it's becoming so much more important. And, I, you know, like I did a podcast ages ago with Jeff Pabst, the CRO of FaZe Clan, and obviously they focus on this a lot. 
And something that he talked quite in depth about was their their willingness and also their strategy to get away from 12 to 36 month traditional sports team sponsorships as much as mm-hmm. possible, where you've got a front of jersey sponsor, you've got a side of jersey sponsor, a back of jersey, you're locked into them, um, anti, anti-competition as well, you know, with, with competing brands, you can't sign them on, where they're wanting to go as much as they can towards, say, they helped to launch the Rebel Whopper in uh, for Burger King in the US, mm. you know, a couple of months, creating a lot of content, pushing money through the door as well. I'd love to learn from you a little bit more about your, you know, commercial structure. So obviously, you know, laying it out for people listening, number one, as you've said, yes, you know, Team Secrets won $11 million prize pool, but that's not A, a reliable source of income, and B, we don't take a, a mass percentage of that anyway, so you can count that as basically non-existent. Um, mm. So then I'd like to learn from you then. So what is the commercial strategy for you guys and and how does that resonate with you, like what Jeff was saying from Face? Uh, it's, uh, it's evolved over time. Uh, I'd say when I first took out of the company and started building the company, um, it was exclusively reliant on price pool. Um, but again, right. It's hugely unreliable, right? Sometimes you win a tournament sometimes you don't, even if you're the best team in the world, like you, you cannot win every single tournament. Right. Mm. Um, so there's, there's that. And so what we, you know, one of the first thing I said was like, you know, we, in order for us to build a business, um, in order for us to build a brand, we need some fun. We need to be financially viable. Right? We need to be able to survive. Uh, and so we need to diversify away from price pool. Um, and so largely over the last two, three years, we have done that, right? So price pool to us is like, it's great that we win. Um, and it's, it's, it's always amazing that we win. Um, but it's uh, uh, the, the, the business is not solely dependent on um, us winning tournaments uh, anymore. And I think that's a, that's a huge step forward uh, for us. Um, I think in terms of sponsorships, um, I think that for us at least, um, we want to have uh, core sponsors that are, you know, connected to our brand uh, that we, you know, that we love working with uh, your Corsair, Secret Lab, et cetera. Like I can't really see us like going and working with any other brand in these categories because we, we love the product, we love the team, we love working with them as a company. Um, I think that gives us, uh, you know, it gives us identity and I think it also gives us stability. Um, and then I also agree um, with, uh, with phase in that doing shorter sponsorships and doing more content-based sponsorships is really good. Um, uh, and we, we do do that. We do that in individual markets. So it's kind of like we have two, two paths, right? One path is we want the, the stable global, you know, multi-year type of sponsorships that we can build identity around. Um, and we also want to do, um, you know, really localized uh, activations with local brands with, um, you know, high impact kind of engagements. Right, um, and because of our global strategy, um, it it's uh, it makes sense because you know we can work with a Malaysian brand, and then you know it doesn't conflict with you know our brand that we work with in Thailand, um, et cetera. Right, versus if you do it at a global scale, like you said, right, there's exclusivity. You know, you if you rep rep one drink product, you can't rep rep another, right? But if you do it in local markets with specific teams, you can do that. Mm-hmm. There's been some really interesting. Um, one of my good friends, Tim Joyce, who, who's done a lot of work in the. Um, university space here he's he's currently studying um you know professionally in marketing as well unlike so many of us in the, in the esports market <laughs> fly by the seat of our pants but yeah he was telling me about some innovative sponsorships in the past in the soccer slash football space 
sure. it's been it's been really interesting there you know around they've they've got so much more structure where you're only allowed to have you know two sponsors and they're only allowed to be front of jersey and side of jersey and they have to be approved by the league in a lot of the cases but yeah he was showing through things like uh you know tattoo sponsorships underwear sponsorships um you know and body painting drawings and things like that too you know i wonder if we're ever going to get to that but it it makes sense what you were saying with you know that that hyper localization and and another thing that's um you know, really stuck in my mind after doing a podcast with with Nick Bobber from the Chiefs Esports Club here in Australia, who have you know a lot of um, traditional partners on board like Marvel and and um, and uh, L'Oreal, you know, for men's sure. and things like that too. You know, it, it, they they receive some new investment, and and one of those people is a is a manager and owner of a, of a, like a forty five plus billion dollar portfolio of companies. And oh wow! I think one of the smartest things I've ever heard from that guy is is he tasked them with do a, doing a profit and loss per team. And I think that's a that's a thing that many esports teams could probably take advantage of, whether you're a tier one, tier two, or tier three, and thinking about that. You know, how do you enter a new game? And, you know, let's say, um, you know, you're signed with Logitech. What do Logitech care about? You know, they might be releasing a bunch of FPS mice. Well, that means that that can probably be attributed towards a CSGO team or a Valorant team or something like that. Um, you know, what what are Corsair's goals, for example? You know, Corsair signed when, especially when Secret was on the top of the world. So it's obvious that Dota 2 and MOBA was, was you know, an advantage for right. them. So can you attribute that sponsorship, you know, to, to that kind of goals and things like that too? So I'd be yeah. interested in, I guess, like a two-prong question for you is number one, like, what do you think of that idea? Like a PL per team. And number two, how do you as a team owner decide to get into a new game? Like what's the what's the sort of process? Okay, that's a big question. <laughs> okay, I'll yeah. do the first question. I'll do the first question, and we can do it. We can do the second one. Um, I think PNL game is uh, useful. Um, it can tell you a number of different things. Um, but I think it's uh, it's important to not let it be the the be end be end you know uh, end all of everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's you know not so simple to just say you know this team is unprofitable, so we we you know we just get rid of this team, or this team is profitable, so we, we get we get this team um, for a number of reasons. Um, one is there are brands that sponsor you at the brand level, right? It's just like, you know, you have, you operate a number of teams, right? It's hard to say, you know, this team is the one that we really care about, or this team is the one that we really care about. It's just like, we like the brand, right? Like team secret as the brand. Um, mm. Like for example, right? Like secret lab, right? It's just like all the gamers use chairs, right? All the gamers use chairs, even our mobile gamers, right? Um, mm. Sit on the chairs. So it's really hard to say, oh, it's, it's really because of this team or that team. Um, so the attribution is not so always so clean cut. I think um, because there are de definitely brands that are like, we want to go into this market, right? And so then it's uh, just like, you know, it's definitely the Malaysian team or we want to get into this type of game, right? So mobile gaming, right? If we get a phone sponsor, it's like definitely mobile game. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that kind of attribution, uh, but it's not always so clean. Um, and then the, the, the second thing is, um, I think it's more important to look at the overall portfolio um, because when you look at esports as a very fast moving industry, there's new games that come out, there's new esports that come out, right? And so you're actually okay with taking a loss on some of the new ones that come out because it's an investment, right? It's investment in growing your brand, for instance, right? It's an investment. Like, I don't think we've ever made like a dollar off of Fortnite, for instance, right? Um, I think it's just like, it was investment because it was good for a brand. Um, it was good for, um, you know, creating personalities. It was good for, um, you know, the hype around Fortnite at the time, that kind of thing, right? And so it's just like, okay, you're you're okay with taking like the, the dollars and cents PNL loss on that um, because you get the intrinsic value back in growing your brand. Um, 
So it's, I think it's important to, to look at the overall portfolio holistically like that and make the decisions that way because it's not always about the dollars and cents. Sometimes you're okay with taking losses in order to you know, make a longer-term longer investment. Maybe the, you know, this particular team is not going to be profitable in year one or year two, but maybe in like you think in year three, four, five, it might you know, either break even or, or be profitable. And then there's all the things that you do because it's good for your brand um, and not because it's good for your profitability, your bottom line. Mm. And it and it makes sense just as any regular company, right? You know, like with my with my yeah. internal company structure, you know, one of our partners plays their studios, their COO is a co-director. And I usually call him, you know, in our company, A the business brains, but also B the money guy. Because usually yeah. I'll come up with an idea that sounds really cool and he'll say, Chris, it's stupid, it's never gonna make money. <laughs> and you know, one thing that he helped to teach me is, you know, okay, when you're hiring employees, you know, what's what's the P and L that, that 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 individual employee is bringing in? So let's say, you know, using your example of, of signing a new game, what happens if you bring on someone to simply increase your social standing through creating clips and, and through, yeah. you know, doing community management? Well, it's not likely that you can attribute their $45,000 salary directly to $55,000 in gain because they're not selling direct sponsorships. They're not reaching yeah. out to direct brands and, you know, they're not even facilitating direct sale to consumer campaigns. But what yeah. value is that worth to you, you know, internally as a whole? So, yeah. It's definitely not easy, I think, to do a P&L per game, yeah. but I think that really helped that esports team. They definitely made some changes after that happened. I think it yeah. allowed them to go back and to be a bit less, you know, like in esports and like you were saying, it's it's so easy to get caught up in like all the exciting things that are happening all the time and you're like, oh, I want to get into that game. You know, Valorant's just come out. Should I start paying salaries for players without tournaments existing? You know, Fortnite, everyone went through this massive, you know, pre-Fortnite uh, World Cup. There was just like, Esports teams like FaZe were signing like 12 people in a single tweet, <laughs> you know, and, and right. 100 Thieves were and people like that too. But, you know, sometimes you need to take a bit of a step back and, um, you know, put, it, put yeah. a stop on the VC money and think about it. I think, I think the, uh, the P&L um, sort of uh, uh, consideration, it should be, um, I, I think the larger point is making informed decisions, right? Because I think it's like if you understand your P&L, um, whether at the game level or at the portfolio level, um, then if you want to, let's say, invest in something or take a loss in something or, you know, just, you know, spend money here in order to get some intrinsic value, right, then you're doing that deliberately. You're doing that, you know, informed, right? You're like consciously saying, okay, I'm willing to invest whatever it is to get whatever back, right? Um, I think too many esports teams don't make those decisions deliberately, right? They're, they're just like, oh, it was, we just go spend some money. <laughs> and then they, they end up in like a huge amount of financial trouble. Right as a result, um, and it's not because um, you know they're, they're uh, you know they they made some decision based on PNL, or it's not because they didn't track PNL. It's just because they um, they didn't make informed decisions, right? Uh, deliberate trade offs. Mm, yeah, and I and I found that you know a different like I found that challenging myself in a different way of thinking. You know, when I was working at Corsair, the goal was always to do a marketing plan, and if you could make that as close to cash flow even as possible, that would be fantastic. But you don't need to take into account your travel, your own salary, um, yeah. and growing the business and things like that because you are paid a salary, you know, through through the marketing that is resultant of that. And that was a big learning yeah. for me, you know, developing these really cool concepts that we could gain sponsorship that would cover the venue costs, that would cover the hire, the, the yeah. travel and things like that. But then it's up to, you know, once again, the business brains on the other side, you know, a couple of years ago being Chris, like, how the hell are you going to make money out of this? <laughs> you can't just run it all for the good of esports. It has to be, it has to be some money coming back too. Right. Some of those things that you do are, are just, uh, they're enablers for other things that you want to do, right? It's just like, okay, this thing might not be profitable. This thing might not, you know, make any money, but 
I need to do this in order to enable things that I will do for the the overall business, right? And if I don't do it, then you know I can't I can't do other things. Mm, yeah, really true. Yeah, and and for me, once again, you know that's that's LinkedIn. You know, spend years sharing, creating yeah. value on LinkedIn, receiving nothing from it. If I went back and even right, right now, you're not I'm looking, looking at here. revenue from LinkedIn, right? At the beginning, you're not like, oh, let me let me create a podcast and let me see how much revenue it generates, right? It's not. Yeah. It's so like, you know, you have to build it, right? You have to spend mm. money and energy and time on it until it gets to a certain point where you're like, okay, now this this is a platform. It's an asset that I can use to enable other things that I want to do. Mm, yeah. And sometimes, as you know, it's like, it's completely random, right? You know, sometimes a brand will sponsor for a completely different reason. You know, maybe yeah. the CEO just loves the game, um, yeah. you know, and that, and that happens all the time in sports, right? Like I know a massive well, brand here in Australia and you can tell the CEO is a huge fanboy of the team that they sponsor. Every time they're launching a new store, he's got them there. He's giggling over them. You know, he's fanboying over their results and talking to the yeah. players and things like that. You can tell, you know, that's, and yeah. sure, the, the uh, promotion they do on the other side, well, that's the marketing team's fault. They can go justify <laughs> that. But, you know, there's there's yeah. always random, there's always random reasons in the back end. There is, there is. You never know what a, what a sponsor is truly interested in. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a passion project. Yeah. So deciding, so deciding to get into a new game for you guys. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you've, you've led in with a couple of things. A, like, does it make sense for our messaging for the business? Do, is this a team that has the, the performance capacity to win and, and do they fit like our culture? Two, you also said, um, you know, regions. So obviously you focus on EU and Southeast Asia. I mean, besides that, you know, a new game, say like Valorant comes out, what are the, you know, three, four, five key decision points that you make to say, yes, I want to invest or, or no, I don't want to enter into that game? Yeah, to us, uh, I think um, the publisher is very important um, because I think it's a, it's a, the, whether a game uh, has success or failure um, is, I think very dependent on the, on the publisher itself, right? I mean, some games just get out of control, right? They're just like super popular, you know, get catches fire, becomes viral you know, in the community, right? Great. But I think um, the amount of infrastructure and support and development of the uh, competitive scene of the publisher is hugely important for the sustainability of the game, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you can, you can see it in, um, you know, a lot of games that like, Tencent is involved in a lot of games that like, you know, you know, uh, Riot uh, is involved in because they have like really great infrastructure, you know, they, you know, they have everything in place, they know how to run ecosystems, leads, all that stuff. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you con contrast that with some companies that are less experienced in these things. And, you know, the game might be great, their player install base might be great. But then on the competitive side, you run into huge issues. You really run into huge issues on production. You run into huge issues on how to promote it as an esport. Um, all these things, and it's really hard for a team to uh, invest into a scene without um, that kind of stability, the backing of the publisher, right? So I think when we look at games, like if Riot comes out with something, we're we're um, it automatically it raises it um, a couple points um, in our mind, right? Because we're like, you know, they do League of Legends so well, they they know the ecosystem so well, and so when they launch a new game, it's just like everything's already in place. Right, you, mm -hmm. you you feel you feel comfortable investing into it as a team, right? You know there's going to be support. You know, like you know there's going to be um, sustainability, revenue opportunities. Uh, you kind of know like what you're getting. Um, and if a, if it's a new publisher or a publisher that doesn't have that experience, um, then you look at it and you're like, well, I don't really know what to expect, right? Maybe um, they take one uh, sort of philosophy in building the esports ecosystem. Maybe they take another philosophy. In the a good example is like Apex Legends, right? Hugely popular game. Like when it came on, it just smashed Fortnite, right? Mm -hmm. In Twitch views and everything, right? It's just like mm. smashed Fortnite. Um, and so 
you know, it, it, it got so much pub, uh, publicity, it got so much, um, you know, energy in the in the ecosystem, but overall it was not as well equipped as some of the more established players, I, I, I want to put it that way, um, to mm-hmm. really run a uh, proper esports circuit um, in the amount of time where, you know, you really had to, you know, put pedal to the metal, right? And then so, you know, delays, you know, um, problems, things like that. Uh, and then eventually it just like, it, it uh, I, I think it was, a, it was a big detriment um, to uh, how Apex Legends developed as a, as an esports ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, so, that's, that's really true. Yeah, Apex, I think is, um, it's almost like PUBG 2.0 about how to own a market and then lose the market, you know, or I mean, PUBG yeah. Mobile, massive, but PUBG on PC. And yeah. On PC. yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think there's that. Um, and then I think um, there's also uh, when we like for us, for example, um, we our identity is really important. Right. So we don't really get into uh, like fighting games. Right. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really get into uh, single player games. We like team based games. Right. We want to build teams. We want to show the, the evolution of a team. Um, you know, the entry and exit of players, you know, how that changes the makeup of the team, all that stuff, right? I think there's a tremendous amount of story uh, around that. And so that's what we want to focus on um, for us. And then uh, for, uh, also for us, the, the different regions, right? Uh, we want to focus on EU and we focus on Southeast Asia. Uh, and so that's a huge consideration for us. Um, games that will resonate uh, in those regions, um, mm-hmm. but also be popular on a, go- on a global scale, right? And so one of the reasons why we haven't gone into, let's say, uh, Mobile Legends, for instance, right? Like we're, we're in Southeast Asia, Mobile Legends is like, you know, really, really popular there, right? Especially in, yeah. you know, uh, you know, a number of different countries, um, but it's not so much a, a global game yet. And so that gives us, uh, that makes us hesitate, right? We want to get into global games. We don't really want to get into a game where it's only as popular in like, you know, a handful of countries, mm-hmm. right? So that's why, you know, we prioritize PUBG Mobile over, you know, Mobile Legends, right? That's why we will pop, you know, prioritize other, uh, you know, mobile games over games that are just like very focused on a specific country or, you know, a handful of countries. Mm. And, you know, one, but that's not for everyone. Yeah. I I just want to be clear that that's not for everyone, right? You you can certainly um, build your brand around that. It's just not our identity. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a question I want to start asking more, you know, team leaders as well is, is around fatigue. Mm. How, how do you find that spot when you've got too many different types of teams, you know, within your organization. And the example I mainly use is, you know, if you're a traditional fan of uh, Fernando Alonso in Formula One, um, and then he starts tweeting all the time about swimming and he starts tweeting about Valorant, and then also he starts tweeting about, I don't know, duck hunting, you know, how relevant is that to his market and his followers? You know, do they say, well, I'm going to tune out because I follow this guy purely for Formula One and his life. Um, sure. So, so how do you how do you find that fatigue point when you've just simply got too too much different you know too many different messages coming through too many different games? Um, I uh, well, so I think I think the example is a little bit different because I think um, you know different esports are a lot closer to each other than um, like Formula One and like duck hunting, for example, right? I think a, a, a more relevant example would be like if uh, Formula One guy you know started doing like NASCAR racing. Something like mm-hmm. right? it's like you know similar, but it's like adjacent, right? At least there's like yeah. similarities. Yeah. Better example. <laughs> um, but I, I do hear I do hear your point around uh, around the fatigue, um, and I think that the the way we manage it is that uh, look, we have different platforms, right? And the different platforms have different demographics, also, 
right? Uh, and so when you look at like Twitter, for instance, right, our, our Twitter follow, following, uh, the demographics are, are mostly pointed at the West, right? So like our, our North American followers, our, our EU followers, et cetera. And of course, there's, there's also, you know, Southeast Asian uh, followers on Twitter also. Um, but I would say uh, the demographic, like majority, right, would be more for the West. And so when we do social media and stuff, we will post more um, around games that are focused more in the EU region on Twitter versus like Facebook, where on Facebook, our fan demographic is mostly Southeast Asian. And so mm. we will emphasize more um, those types of games that resonate with uh, that type of audience. So we kind of match um, the social media engagement with um, the different platforms and the different um, makeup of the audience for each of those platforms. Uh, mm. So we, we, I mean, we post big news across all of, all, all of our platforms, um, but it's like the uh, daily engagement, the, the, the smaller things, um, the more pointed things where we uh, select a platform based on where we think the audience will resonate most with. Mm, mm, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it, it's just funny. I was just thinking as well before you were saying about, you know, how the publisher is so important to getting into a game, but then coming from a history of Dota 2, it's like a, <laughs> that, that's always hard ones. It seems we just spent 30 minutes kind of crapping on the way that they, they do esports. <laughs> and I guess, you know, I wanted, I wanted to circle back to that again. So, so if you were, you know, if, if Valve came to you, um, as they probably should, you know, they got all of the team owners in of the top 20 teams in the world into a room together. You know, what, what would be your general um, gist of, of what you would tell them to do running running Dota 2 esports? You know, how would you structure a, a global esports platform for something like Dota 2? I would say, um, like, what, I, what the feedback I would give is, like, structure the incentives so that it's not so top heavy. Right. I mean, even though we're 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 you know consistently top four team in the world, right? Um, you know, I'd th I'd say for the sake of the ecosystem, for the sake of the overall, um, you know, esport, right? It needs to not be so feast or famine, right? You need to give opportunities so that you know everybody can at least, or you know, a lot of a lot more um, entities can at least exist and and survive, right? It's not like you know we we all need to go win you know TI money, but um, I think. Uh, you know, you need, you need to give opportunities so that it's not just like the top four or, or nothing. Mm, mm, that makes sense. So what, what are your thoughts on the, on the mobile gaming market then? Obviously you guys are starting to get into that, you know, what's the, yeah. and I guess I'd love to focus on the commercial viability. You know, they're obviously not using, um, you know, traditional keyboards, mice. They're obviously not using, you know, your NVIDIA graphics cards who you're sponsored by as well. Like what's, what's that scene been like for you expanding into? Tremendous. Um, I, I think mobile gaming is uh, one of the highest gaming segments um, in all, all of esports. Um, and I think uh, there was a lot of skepticism um, in the beginning. Like, oh, well, gaming is not really, a, you know, it's not really as uh, hardcore or you know, as serious as PC gaming. Um, and there are there are a lot of differences. Um, but I think uh, you know, over the last couple of years, or not last couple, of, over the last like year or so, right? Um, games like PUBG Mobile, even you know, Mobile Legends, etc., right? Hosting massive tournaments that are sell out as much as PC games, PC mm -hmm. game esports tournaments, um, and have proven that um, you know it is it is a it is a significant player um, in the in the industry. Um, I think the the storylines um, are, are you know exist very much the same way, right? The ups and downs, the drama, right? The excitement, all of that stuff that makes an esports so exciting uh, exists in mobile gaming. Uh, and I, I do think that one of the benefits is that it's so accessible, right? You don't need to have like three thousand dollar PC to to play some of these games. I think it's just like you know most phones will run, you know, uh, the, these games that we play, and so you know you get a lot more influx of talent. 
um, and you get a lot more related relatability also uh, because you know people just, uh, everybody plays mobile games everybody has a phone right mm. yeah and i see it as i see it as almost like you know just a larger market that has a lower buying power and a low expense yeah. and that you know maybe it evens out in the end maybe 500,000 you know followers for a platform that promotes dota 2 is similar to 3 to 5 million you know that that's within mobile games and you see that you know like a game like free fire by Garena, yeah. you know, Corinthians, the world champion team, you know, made a piece of content about that on LinkedIn, you know, the biggest game and the biggest team you never heard of. They've got something like 3.2 million followers on Instagram yeah. and they only play Free Fire. And I think I'm pretty yeah. sure after they won the tournament last year in September, they had 1.3 million. So they've grown, you know, 2 million followers in that time in, in one year, you know, just playing a single mobile game. Yeah, it's very accessible. Um, to, mm. a, to a large number of people, um, and it's uh, it's something that um, I think will continue to show a tremendous amount of growth. Yeah, and I think one one look at you know YouTube adoption and and um, smartphone adoption in India is a pretty obvious example of that. You know, it's still developing; okay. people are still getting smartphones for the first time. They're still getting you know proper speed internet for the first time as well. So the total available market is growing, not just by more interest, not just by population, but just by people having access. And if you look at you know um, the YouTube battle for those who aren't aware between um, <laughs> PewDiePie and T Series was a massive yeah. meme. You know PewDiePie, the most subscribed YouTube channel in the world at one stage, and you know single guy who creates funny gaming content. But you know coming up behind him was T Series, which is essentially kind of like a an MCN for music in the yeah. in the indian space you know they they will publish and, and post um music videos so i'm just like opening up the t-series here on now on social blade they get four four billion views every 30 days on it's video nuts. views on their platforms and they're achieving an average of four million subscribers per month yeah it's, I mean, it's nuts it's just crazy you know it's it's the old adage of every company wants to get into china because if everybody in china gave you half a cent you'd be rich you know it, it's it's strength and volume right strength and the numbers um, you know, you don't have to spend, you know, a ton, but if, you know, a billion people spend a little bit, that's a, it adds up to a ton. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm also really interested in, you know, the different monetization avenues of, of the audience that because obviously their buying power is, is not as much, you know, in half or less in, in a lot of stages in Southeast Asia compared to yeah. people in the U S and, and how that works. Because, you know, for me personally, I'm used to working with influencers who are selling 60 to 80 dollar hoodies in usd and they're and they're selling you know one one to three million worth of those in a single drop but it's not the same you know in southeast asia and you know we're we're planning a new merchandising business at the moment that we're going through the throws with and talking to a lot of our contacts in southeast asia you know we're, we're looking to sell a product for 40 dollars plus um, which is pretty standard but you know they're saying look if you know if you want to launch this into thailand you've got to figure out a way to bank this 17 otherwise people just aren't going to buy it for sure, for sure. I, I, and the way that I think about buying power in um, the, the various uh, regional fan bases in esports is that it's a, it's like every other business, it's an investment in uh, in the future. It's investment in growth, right? The, the buying power may not be there, but if you look at um, the various countries, right, that are represented um, in those regions, um, the the people, the amount of people that are moving from, you know, below the poverty line into middle class is the highest amount of growth than almost anywhere in the world. Right, and so you're you're really investing in the the trend, uh, and you're investing in uh, the future of things. You know, there's so you know people may not be able to buy the the fifty dollar hoodie today, um, but the middle class is growing faster than anywhere else in the world, and so people are you know bound to be able to afford these things in the future. I mean, I just look at China twenty years ago. Right? I mean, the 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 amount mm -hmm. of people that have been raised up into the middle class and upper middle class, and the buying power has increased like so fast, so fast. Um, and so I think that's 
you know, the, the type of lens that you gotta, you gotta move on. Mm, it's very true. Yeah. And something I haven't really thought about too much before. It's a very meta way to put it. <laughs> it's like meta, <laughs> meta within business and yeah. everything gaming. So where, you know, as, as we're kind of, you know, coming, coming to the end of, of, of this chat as a whole, you know, where, where do you see um, some trends in esports happening globally right now? Do you, do you see more teams from the West expanding to the East? Um, you know, do you see, you know, games like Valorant looking to pick up? Like what, like what sort of trends are you looking at? Um, in terms of West versus East, I think, uh, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think it's going to be up to the individual uh, esports team because I think every esports team has to have their own identity. I think that's very important, right? So I think it's just like, if you're the French team, you gotta be the French team, right? If you're the European team, you gotta be the European. If you're like USA team, you gotta, like, you, you, like it's, I don't think it's very authentic or genuine to be like, oh, all of our teams are based in one country. And then because like this other region is growing really fast, we're just gonna have some random team over there, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's just like, okay, like it might be, it might do something for your brand, but at the end of the day, it's just like, you're not doing it like very authentically and it doesn't really, um, align with what you are as a as a as a brand um in terms of identity right um i think it works for us because you know we set out trying to do this right and so it's not like we just have a random team somewhere it's like we actually made tremendous investment in malaysia and thailand in vietnam etc right and we continue to make a lot of investment in europe um and so our brand is about you know global um but focused in the, these two regions I, I don't think every team uh can sort of do that um, but I think, you know, you, you don't need to do that to be successful. I think there's a, there's a number of ways you can be successful, right? You just have to be able to, you just have to be clear on your identity. Um, so there's that. Um, and I think uh, overall, like, I think we touched upon a lot of them, which is, you know, mobile gaming, I think it will continue to be a force. Um, I think it will. Um, uh, so I think it's like very strong in Asia, right? In China and Southeast Asia, et cetera, right? Because of the adoption of mobile phones, et cetera, and the, 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 um, the habits of the users, right? Um, but I think it will also grow globally um, as technology uh, expands, right? So like 5G, for instance, for instance, right? 5G will make, you know, mobile gaming reach an even greater level, right? Lower latency, you know, higher, you know, graphics intensive games, things like that. Um, and I think uh, this will lead to wider global adoption, right? So like, you know, in the past it's like, if you wanna do mobile gaming, you have, you have to go into Asia, right? Cause otherwise it's just not very relevant in some of the other markets. But I do think that uh, that will start to shift um, as the technology uh, matures. Mm -hmm. mm, that makes sense. So I'd be interested to, yeah, it's gonna be very interested to watch your, you know, further expansion into the mobile space and see how that works, you know? Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, you guys are pretty heavy into League of Legends over in yeah. Southeast Asia as well, which is, you know, such a massive, you know, PC dominant force over there too. Yeah, uh, and to your to your question about Valorant, I I, I do think um it will be it will be significant. Uh, you know, like I said, I place a lot of trust in in, uh, in Riot. Um, and I think uh, for for us, you know, we're we're looking at various options. Uh, we haven't really gone into it yet. Um, uh, in terms of like what we like to do in, in terms of getting into a new game, we'd like to um kind of see how the the scene kind of develops. We like to have the scene in a, a little bit more of a developed state. Um, before we get in, right? Um, because I think uh, there needs to be like a, you know, a circuit, right? There needs to be, you know, a league, something like that, um, that we really can, really can like sink our teeth into and really be uh, pointed in our investments for for us to get take that step. But it is something that we're looking into very strongly. Um, and we're looking into different markets for it because I think it's um, it's popular in a lot of different markets. Mm. And, you know, as as quite a few people have pointed out too, they're, they're doing with Valorant what they did with League of Legends in the start. 
you know, empowering third party companies to kind of build the scene for them and to validate their product and to test mm-hmm. it in the market before they take over and, you know, do their own thing. I think people forget that Intel Extreme Masters used to be like StarCraft 2, CS 1.6, League of Legends. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's yeah. just CSGO. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's definitely that kind of stuff, you know, happened in the past. But um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future. Obviously, a ton of, you know, CSGO pros coming out of the woodwork or leaving the game entirely to go across to Valorant. So that, that if nothing else, shows some confidence from them, you know, leaving the Valve um, ecosystem and going into Riot's infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. agree. So if anyone wants to follow you online or, or talk to you or, or catch up with you, where can they do so? You can't actually follow me online because I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on like pretty much anything. <laughs> and so that's actually that's actually a uh, purposeful uh, because I, I think that so I get a lot of my uh, news from Twitter, right? Um, and I and I get a lot, I keep a very close pulse uh, on the industry um, through Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that um, you know being a being a CEO of a global esports brand, it's a, it's very dangerous to be on Twitter. Somebody's going to be offended over something. <laughs> so this is better than I'm not on Twitter. Um, but uh, you can definitely follow the team. Uh, so Team Secret on all social medias, and uh, you know I'm uh, I have my fingerprints over all the all the content that we make and everything. I'm very hands on. Um, so if you uh, want to interact with me um, directly, LinkedIn is the best place to do so. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Sounds good. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been it's been really interesting to talk to another you know another stalwart in the in the Dota two space. You know I think um, you know if Vals was to listen, everyone I've talked to so far has pretty much said the same stuff. So hopefully they do as a, you know, as a Dota 2 fan myself. And I do, I do feel like the international works as a marketing ploy because it worked on me. You know, I used to play League of Legends, Bit of Heroes of New Earth, and I switched to Dota 2 after TI3, after watching that. Oh, okay. I was falling in love with, with kind of the game and the infrastructure. So I know that, I know that the international works, at least on me, but yeah, it's a, you know, it's, it's interesting to see where the esports competitive market is sitting right now and, and hoping that, you know, we can have more than three or four teams that are making it a financial viability because we've seen that so much in so many different games. We saw that for so many years in the US, right? Like Team EG was the only team that had any money in the US. Yeah. So they could afford to get all the best CS players. They could afford all the best StarCraft 2 players, the Huck and Idra, and they could just price everyone else out of the market because they had the Intel dollars, they had the Seal Series dollars, and everyone else had nothing. At best, yeah. you know, Check 6 was getting $600 a month from, from TG Esports and things like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, like you were saying, you need to make that that more even infrastructure because it helps to rise, you know, it helps to rise the whole industry. You need to have those competitive battles between the top teams. And, and, you know, there's so many stories and, and so many things to be uncovered. And I think, you know, Red Bull and OG have done a fantastic job, but, you know, I think it needs to come more from the team side, not the sponsor being the enterprising brand that is Red Bull. You know, it needs to, the team needs to have enough funds and needs to have that infrastructure where they can say, yes, you know, we can now afford and justify to hire a four man internal camera and operations team you know, to, to create this right. content and things like that. Right. I mean, I, I would love to have more, more, uh, more teams, more competition. I mean, people, you know, more orgs would be more competition, that kind of thing, but it's, it's actually great for the industry uh, and something that's good for the industry is good for everybody. Um, yeah. And you know, one, one question I just remembered that I forgot to ask you, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on what Nigma have done. Um, mm. And do you think that'll, that'll be something that happens more in the future? So I guess like Dota 2 more so than in any other industry, you know, your your team is player-owned, OG seems to be extremely player-focused, and now mm-hmm. also we've seen last year, you know, one of the best teams in the world, Team Liquid, their Dota 2 team after winning, um, I've put together the number a few times, I always forget, but it's something like $15 million over the past, you know, five years or whatever, mm-hmm. left to create their complete own player organization, Team Nigma. Do you think yeah. that that's something that'll, that'll happen, you know, more often in, in the Dota 2 space? 
I think it'll continue to happen. Um, I think uh, success is TBD, kind of depends on what they do. I think it's very early. Um, I like what they've done so, thus far. I mean, they've, they've built um, a, a good brand identity, um, just TBD on you know the next steps that they take. It, it, is, a, it is a tough road. I mean, uh, I'll tell you, right? It's kind of like how Secret started like you know three, four years ago. Um, it's kind of like what they're doing now. And, and uh, it, it has not been uh, an easy road at all. Mm. Um, so like for, for Secret, right, um, one of the defining things um, that I set out to do when I joined Secret was, can we build the brand big enough and strong enough so that when Puppy retires, Team Secret is still an amazing brand, right? Mm. And I think that's what you got to do as a player-owned org, right? I, I think like some of these players, right, um, they're, they're, they're carrying the brand right now. They're carrying the team right now. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned OG, you mentioned Nigma. So it's just like, okay, when those guys retire, can the brand still survive? Mm. And I think that's, that's really the main good. question you got to answer. Yeah, that's a really good point. I haven't thought about putting it that way before because you would say right. with FaZe Clan, if Rain and Adapt and Banks retired, yeah, FaZe will still be a massive brand. But it's yeah. right. Like if, if No Tail and exactly. Seb leave OG, like if they, they retire, is OG still a thing? Yeah. Right. If, uh, if Kuro retires, is, is Nigma still a thing? You got to answer that mm. question. If you want to survive, you got to answer that question. Mm, that's really true. And I guess to, to harp on, like I was talking about the prize money as well, you know, it's, this is probably unfathomable to people outside the industry and almost to me too, you know, just looking at, um, a document here, I've got Nigma has won $17.7 million prize money. And, yeah. and you guys have won $11 million prize money. OG has won, you know, even more, you know, 25 plus million. And this is all in USD. Yet still, yeah. it's hard to create a sustainable business. Like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy that yeah. these three teams together have won like almost $50 million prize money, yet still struggle to say like it's an easy to make a sustainable business in this game. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, that's the that's the nature of uh, the Dota incentives, right? That's why it's got to mm. it's got to shift. If you if you want sustainable brands for the long term. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks thanks for coming on, mate. We're going to have to do a follow-up, I think, in the next six to eight months. Love the conversation, man. Yeah, fantastic. So thanks thanks you and, and thanks to everyone for tuning into the Big Esports Podcast, whether you're watching live here on LinkedIn, uh, the YouTube video back, or whether you're listening to the audio-only version of the podcast. Uh, we've shifted the release schedule to around Thursdays as well, so hopefully you're enjoying the, the content, hopefully enjoying the increased video content on here as, as well as LinkedIn and YouTube as well. Thanks, guys. Bye for now.